This is the Future of Agriculture podcast, the show that explores the people, companies, and ideas shaping the future of agribusiness. If you're curious about innovations in ag tech, rural entrepreneurship, ag sustainability, or food security, this is the show for you. Let's get started. Hello, thanks for joining me for another episode. My name is Tim Hamrich. want to start off today's show by thanking another new member of the Future of Agriculture membership community, Brad Stover. Thank you, Brad, for joining. And those of you listening can join Brad and others over at patreon.com forward slash agriculture. Forgot to mention on that note last week that if you like the Farmer's Spotlight segments at the end of the show we did, that one was with Northerly, I'm releasing those full interviews, not just the five to 10 minute segment to the membership community. So that is one perk of joining in addition to meeting some great people and some other bonus content and fun giveaways I have over there. Today's episode is going to be a great one, especially for you entrepreneurs or aspiring entrepreneurs in the audience. Matthew Pryor is a partner in Authentic, which some of you might remember. Uh, Sarah Nolette, his partner in Authentic, was on the show back in episode 112, a long time ago now. They are an Australia-based food and ag sustainability and innovation consulting firm. He's also the co-founder of Tenacious Ventures, a food and ag venture capital firm that just closed their first fund of nearly $30 million. Even before these titles, Matthew had already successfully exited two different startups in two different industries on two different continents. Uh, One outside of ag in the Silicon Valley during the dot-com boom, and the second in irrigation technology in Australia. That second company, called Observant, was sold to Jane Irrigation in 2017. Sometimes I get so excited about a guest that I tend to want to talk about everything, and I kind of forget that everything a guest is an expert at doesn't necessarily fit in a 40-ish minute podcast. With Matthew's incredible expertise, I definitely fell victim to this trap. I was kind of like a kid in a candy store wanting to pick his brain on everything. Uh, You see, Matthew is a successful founder, investor, and strategist. He's also knowledgeable in one of my favorite subjects, which is water. Uh, Because all of that is way too much for one episode, though I did try, I'm going to do something here I've never done before. Uh, I'm going to release this episode, which talks more about Matthew's entrepreneurial journey, lessons for startups, and a few of his current projects. So releasing this one. But I'm also going to release a bonus episode this upcoming Monday, talking about water issues, which I found equally interesting and extremely relevant. So I hope you'll tolerate just one extra episode for me in the coming days, and I promise it'll be worth it. For today, though, Matthew starts by talking about moving back to Australia after exiting his first company in the Silicon Valley and eventually starting his second startup, that one in irrigation called Observant. Enjoy. The startup ecosystem hadn't really started to emerge in Australia. Certainly, there was no ag tech. Uh, There were maybe one or two other companies similar to observant, you know, in one way or another, looking at directly applying technology on farm. I mean, I didn't, like I said, come from the tech side. Uh, I didn't grow up on a farm or farming. My family owned two, you know, decently large farms. So spent, you know, most days and certainly most weekends raising cattle and sheep and, and that kind of stuff. So I kind of felt like I had it 
in my blood, but would, would never want to say I was, was a farmer per se. But it just like, it seemed very clear. And as an entrepreneur, you know, maybe had a nose for opportunity. Um, and it just really felt like this was a massive, uh, you know, open area of, of opportunity, certainly in Australia. As that period sort of wore on and the millennium drought really started to bite uh, and pressure around water and water management started to build and the government started to ultimately, you know, cast around for things that needed to be done to to address uh, availability of water and maybe, you know, the kind of fair allocation and use of water. It seemed like, you know, technology was one of the major things, you know, probably one of the two major things, obviously, you know, the, the kind of policy direction, which I think is uh, an area to get into too, but just the tech from the basic idea that it's got to be measured and managed better. Right. And so tell me about the thought process. This is interesting to me because I think it's still really, really relevant. The water problem is such a big problem and, and so complex. And definitely, I think technology can help. But how did you identify a specific problem that you thought you could add value to in a way that people would pay for it? Mm. Yeah, it was an important question early. We were fortunate in respect that we actually started with a really specific problem. So in this particular case, it was management of water in, in cattle ranching operations. The the extensive end of what in Australia we call the you know the pastoral production systems, um, particularly in the north and the west of the country, you know, very big open kind of rangeland country, extremely low stocking rates and water availability becomes a really big factor, both in what country you can open up and the management overhead of stocking that country with, with cattle. And, you know, there are parts of the country where there's decently available water or, or uh, subsurface water or underground water that would need to be pumped up. But of course, as soon as you do that in a remote area, you've got a pump and a tank and a water trough that's got to be, you know, kept an eye on in this country in the middle of the really dry parts. You know, cattle could easily perish in a day or two if water wasn't available and, you know, there wasn't any water that wasn't a a developed water point, if you like. And so the balancing those two things was a tough economic problem on the one hand, opening up this country that, you know, otherwise could be decently profitable and productive with, as I said, Earlier, you know, the fact that you basically had to employ someone whose sole job was to drive a truck around in, you know, pretty dangerous, very remote country, kind of, you know, winding down the window and looking out to see whether there was, you know, water in a trough and where the cattle were drinking it. So we had the one interesting part there was that some actually economic work had been done by the government of Western Australia. And they essentially said, if you can do this if you can solve this problem for less than two and a half thousand dollars a year then everyone's making money so it's great like as a startup to be told very specifically this is what you need to do and this is what it needs to cost great way to start and what was observance solution yeah i mean today you know <laughs> you would call it a, a iot water management solution of course in in 2003 2004 that was bespoke microelectronics in, you know, a bespoke enclosure with a very rudimentary kind of battery and solar panels 
and, and a, you know, kind of both power management, radio communications management, and a range of different sensors. Interestingly, even way back then, I think we did a, a camera was one of our first devices, and I'm pretty sure that we were one of the first, if not the first, company you know, transmitting images of kind of farming operations back to uh, kind of homesteads and uh, offices of, of, you know, what, what was happening in the agriculture productive environment, which was no mean feat back then. It was yeah. very low sort of bandwidth radios over very long distances, entirely solar powered. So it was cool, right? There was a lot of neat tech and we were building it all ourselves and solving, you know, decently to very tough technical problems. But of course, it was capital intensive. And, and as I say, it really goes to the patience of our investors that we got the chance to solve all those problems, you know, pretty much from first principles on our own. Absolutely. And I think that's what's, what's remarkable. I mean, just having two successful exits in any domain is extremely remarkable, especially on two different continents. You know, I mean, it's just really remarkable. I, I think it has to take a lot of execution. So I know people are, are hesitant to always kind of brag on themselves a little bit, but tell me about kind of what you think the team, both teams did that allowed you all to execute so effectively in, in both situations. Yeah, I, I, from the helicopter pass, you know, I'm sure there are things that about what Observant did that, that, that was, was very early and a lot of firsts or near firsts. The reality was we made an awful lot of mistakes, right? I mean, a lot of that was working out what was going to work and it, it, we, we wouldn't have referred to it as lean back then, but essentially that was what we were doing. I would say we did, we were pretty mindful about looking at other industries and the filter that we wanted everything to pass was why should this be different in ag? And I still ask that question today. People come and they talk about things and they show things and they explain stories and reasons. And the first question I want to know the answer to is why is this different in ag? Why doesn't stuff that's already out there work in ag? As it, as it applies to Observant, I think the things that we thought about were on the product side, it had to be simple. And if we did anything the best, you know, we were probably the simplest and certainly the most robust, which was the second part. We wanted it to, we wanted the product to just immediately and obviously look like solid, reliable agricultural equipment. And people weren't doing that in the kind of tech part of things. And then the third would be owning technology had to feel again like owning equipment and that meant channel. So we had to go to companies who were otherwise selling tanks and pumps and polypipe and things like that and work out how is it possible to convince these people that they should take on this, you know, what looks like a scary, complicated product and, you know, feel like they're not going to get their fingers burnt. Hmm. And what role did you take in, in that company in those early days to get, get all that done? Yeah, I guess like all, you know, kind of early journeys, you know, cook, chief and, and bottle washer or whatever, like everything. Ultimately, as the company grew, uh, you know, I took on a kind of dual role of chief technical and chief executive officer uh, for, for a good part of that journey. All the others uh, on the early journey with me would, would uh, happily admit to the fact that at the start of the journey, I knew nothing about hardware. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, I probably only know dangerously little about hardware now, but that, you know, that was important. And, you know, I, I 
because it was so important to get that right, you know, being a hardware company, and again, this is you know super relevant for now and, and for the lens that, that we take now, a lot of investors are nervous about hardware and that's for good reason often because if you don't go about it the right way, you can get burnt pretty badly. And the you know much repeated adage that hardware is hard is you know most definitely true. Easily the biggest kind of existential crises we faced were all related to quality of hardware and you know what happens. And it's you know still true of ag. Like you're giving somebody something, it's going a long way away from anywhere, and only bad bad stuff happens if the product doesn't work. And, and that's, that's actually hard to achieve, right? I mean, it, Apple and companies like that have trained their customers to actually walk back into the Apple store, give it to the genius bar person and, and you know, say, hey, can you fix this for me? doesn't happen so much in ag. You know, uh, that product better work. And if it doesn't, your reputation will, will suffer. So I guess, you know, the, the, the role really spanned a lot, of, a lot of different things. And again, that, it was a 10 plus year journey. So learn heaps certainly on the hardware side, learn heaps certainly around, you know, what was working and go to market, learn heaps about, you know, how to do customer service well in a remote kind of setting, you know, what technologies and techniques and business relationships and incentives uh, work to deliver good and bad ultimately customer service. Yeah, let's dive in a little bit more to that last part. So what can or what should startups be doing, especially hardware startups, to feel comfortable that they have the support infrastructure in place before they launch? I think the pr probably, and again, we, we may not have explained it this way when we were doing it, but I think we understood it. What customers usually want, and certainly in ag, what customers usually want is a sense of self-determination. And it's not that they don't believe in the power of good customer support or that they don't think having good relationships with suppliers is important, but don't want to be in a position of only having that choice of the way to get something done or fix something up. So I think what that means is when you look at all the different ways that customer support works, you have to keep the customer's sort of ultimate desire to feel like they're in control of the variables uh, front of mind. So how do you deliver a support, you know, make it as self-help as possible? If something can be fixed, make sure that all the information and diagrams and all that technical stuff is available for people to just grab themselves and make use of themselves in the way that, you know, well, certainly for us, like, the difference between being able to actually talk to a human and not was so fundamental. You know, the, the kind of rationalist in me said, oh, look, let's just go to chat and let's just, you know, do it uh, as, as electronically possible. But the reality is if something's not working, someone wants to get a human on the phone and just say, hey, look, I need that fixed. And they just, you know, there's just a sense, again, kind of speaks to that sense of being supported, sense of being understood, and you have to just look at, delivering that. I guess ultimately it's, it's human psychology as much as anything. I would say really successful support, you know, customer success is, is about fundamentally understanding human psychology and what makes people feel like you know what they need and that you're going to get it to them as soon as possible. Hmm. You think there's a room or an opportunity for a third party to pop up as like a an outsourced customer success in ag where, you know, you, you would partner with them and they would handle that? 
Yeah, look, it's a good question. I mean, for sure, through the observant journey and, and subsequent to that, have been exposed to and played with a lot of different things. I know that, you know, had conversations plenty of times about, you know, geek squad for ag, ag right. sort of thing. Right. I think, especially in combination, I mean, if you look at where some of the kind of hardware directions are going, the kind of, you know, right to repair and the more kind of community supported elements of ag, then I think that there probably is. I think especially if it were a good bit of information that anybody can get access to, and then you can sort of feel like, yeah, if, if it were this magical geek squad, like you're going to them because they know the most, because they've done the work, because they're able to answer your questions, not because they're the exclusive kind of purveyor of, of that service. I think if you can win with that formula, then then for sure. Because, I mean, you, you, you know, any farmer anywhere who has had good support and seen how much it benefits their business isn't going to have a problem paying for something that delivers, but I think has a big problem feeling like they have to pay for something that's needed and only can come from a small number of places. Yeah. You uh, you said 10 years or so that I, th- I think you said that you were with Observant, and then I know um, you and your uh, co-founder ended up selling the company, and then did you roll right into Agthentic from there? No, it was a it was an interesting journey. That the certainly in terms of you know like a like a startup journey and the you know why you might or might not think about acquisition and growth and that kind of thing. The reality was that in the irrigated agriculture, channel to market was everything. And again, this kind of goes to the the, the earlier question about you know product market fit. If you're if the best job you can do is work out what the optimal irrigation program is then the closer you are to the irrigation system, the more tightly integrated with the irrigation system you are, the more capable you are. Hmm. So what I mean by that is like irrigation either is metal or plastic, right? If you like zoom out at planetary scale and and largely as far as, as, far as how the market is currently functioning, and this might be you know, another of the kind of startup lessons is the market is already there, Right. The, the kind of building blocks of the market are already there. So when you look at irrigated ag, it's basically big bits of metal or there's plastic that goes in, you know, above and below the ground. And there's a handful of companies who are largely responsible for, for that, those kind of bases of technology. So if you're in the irrigation decision-making business, you can't not pay attention to how water is delivered. A logical progression of thought is you blur the lines like what's the what's the water delivery tech and what's the what's the decision making tech that stuff has to come from the same place hmm. and so you know in a market positioning point of view okay when are those decisions made they're made when the irrigation system is designed that's similar to like fittings on a house eventually people who make high end architectural fittings work out that they need to be talking to architects because it's the architects who make the plans and the builders follow the plans and so the the relationship with Jane and ultimately the acquisition and, and the product, you know, in the hands of a company like Jane makes all the sense in the world because the reality is that over a decent period of time, you want to design an irrigation system with automation in mind. That will change the place that you put valves. It will change the size and scale of the irrigation zones. It'll change the conversation that the irrigation designer and salesperson has with the grower 
because they'll say, look, this is how your soils lay out. You really want to make a slightly higher investment up front so you can match your irrigation program to your soil types. Yeah. So that's, that was, that's kind of a big strategic picture um, about where, where they ended up. So I, I w- worked um, a- after the acquisition for a good bit of time, both in Australia and had the privilege also of seeing Jane's operations uh, in India and in Israel. And, oh, wow. you know, those were really informative lessons for me too, you know, for a number of different reasons. A, you know, they're a super impressive company and in India, you know, really amazing kind of vertically integrated food company. So that was was great experience, but also it kind of restored my confidence in Australia as a as a world class ag tech kind of ecosystem, and probably really lit a fire for me uh, about wanting to see more get done there. I could see that we had heaps of potential, but you know, like to global standard, we weren't doing anywhere nearly a good enough job at kind of maximizing those opportunities about, you know, surrounding startups with the sort of infrastructure they needed and with attracting venture capital into our part of the market. So I started to think about that. I had the opportunity to to co-found a very early stage accelerator program called Rocket Cedar. I got to help a bunch of early companies in their journey and just loved it. Just just realized pretty quickly that that was what I wanted to spend my time doing. Through those, you know, through those circles is how I met Sarah Nolet, who's the founder of Exantic, uh, who's someone I think you know pretty well. And pretty much as soon as Sarah and I started talking to each other, we realized that we, you know, we just had so much in common in terms of what we wanted to see in, in ag tech and the potential for ag tech to deliver, you know, impact and returns. So, you know, after a decent bit of time, you know, I joined Exantic and we loved the, the kind of projects we were doing working across a range of different kind of agri-food innovation settings, but a lot of the time helping startups, you know, with experience, helping, I guess, like a performance coach, helping them work out how to tell their story better, how to raise money better. And we would fall in love with some of these companies and get really frustrated that we couldn't, you know, match them with with a with a committed source of capital. And, uh, and ultimately that's how the authentic uh, journey kind of also was the genesis uh, of Tenacious Ventures. Okay, I hope you you made time for a three hour interview here because every time you answer, I've got about twenty more questions. Uh, but but let's go back to the exit. So in the irrigation space, as you mentioned, there's just a small handful of companies that are kind of responsible for the distribution of irrigation, you know, worldwide. Does that make it easier or more difficult for a startup in the space to find a successful exit? Mm-hmm. Yeah, look, it's a, it's a great question, and I, I don't want to preface this by saying you know this is these are my personal opinions, uh, right? Definitely not not official policy of anybody, um, but but I do you know the Clifton's Strength Finder? There's a, pers- a personality test, yeah. yeah. So my number one Clifton strength is strategic thinker. Uh, so I, I tend to spend a lot of time uh, kind of pondering this stuff. So look, I mean, it is an interesting question, and for sure, when you're dealing in irrigated agriculture, you, you're very very quickly going to end up. Uh, having conversations with, you know, the Netafims and the Janes and the Lindsays and the Valleys uh, of the world. You know, you, your question was was about opportunity. I mean, th- there is always opportunity for sure. And there's also, you know, good and, you know, smaller but still very successful companies. You know, one of the companies that I was most impressed with through that journey, although, you know, never got to work with them perhaps as closely as I might like, was Nelson Irrigation. And just, you know, a company with kind of relentless pursuit 
of excellence in, in a couple of key areas. So I don't want to make it seem like the only game in town are, are, are the kind of big big games, but for sure, when you go to market, when you start talking to growers, uh, when, you know, when you put a system or a solution into the marketplace, at a minimum, you've got a position relative to the rest of the market, right? So that's the first part of your strategy, which is, are we complementary or, or contrasting to, and how does that story hang together? You know, is it realistic? Like, I'm going to take on global distribution myself and go toe-to-toe with uh, with the local reps of, of, of all the big brands, you know, you better have a decent bank balance as opposed to, you know, those companies typically tend to move a bit slower, tend to leave gaps in the market that, that um, smaller companies can fill. So I think there's, there's still plenty. And, and, I mean, they're excellent and extremely well-run companies and so they make it their business also to know who's doing what well, right? And a decent number of them have have made plenty of acquisitions themselves. It's funny, you know, when we do this sort of work or have done this sort of work with startups in the first place, the very first question we ask founders is, where do you see yourself in 10 years? Do you want to be running a 50, 100, 200-person company? Like, is that the kind of thing that you get out of bed thinking about in the morning? Do you want to build a company that's got a global footprint that you're responsible for running that, you know, has hundreds of employees and operates in three or four or five countries and and is having kind of global impact? Or do you want to have secured the financial future of you and your family? You know, and and like ultimately those things become important because (laughs) there is nothing harder than being an entrepreneur. You're strapping in for a long period of hard slog, uh, and you better know why you're doing it. Right. You mentioned impact earlier when talking about, you know, starting tenacious ventures, you know, returns, at least in hindsight, are easy to measure, but but impact may be a little bit more difficult. How, how do you measure that? Yeah, I, it's easily the area that we're most excited about with tenacious is the culmination of being able to deliver returns and impact, uh, you know, non, non-concessional impact, I guess, as is, is it's called sometimes. Hmm. Look, I mean, there the definitely are ways. Having said that, the thing that we're very nervous about when we start to talk to startups about impact is, you know, here's this enormous uh, measurement regime that you now have to adopt and you've got to go to all your customers and get them to report, you know, the reduction in diesel use <laughs> as mm-hmm. a result. Like, it's, it's not going to happen. So you have to be careful about, you know, we're careful about what commitments we make because we don't want to make commitments on behalf of a seed or series A stage company that, you know, won't have enough people and won't have enough hours in any given day to get done, you know, what they already need to do. Hmm. Uh, having said that, when you look at agriculture and you look at consumer demand, you know, consumers are demanding and agriculture wants to deliver lower chemical intensity production. Right now, that's not because we believe or don't believe that glyphosate is safe or not safe, or we believe or don't believe that you know adding nitrogen, you know, nitrogen and whatever to a crop is is an important thing. But you know, it's pretty easy to get a large majority of people to believe that lower chemical intensity production of food and fiber is a good thing, yeah. and you know, it's it's absolutely a good thing from an impact point of view enabling people to take a more a, a larger focus on health and fertility of soil 
right, is, is something that all farmers want to do. You know, sometimes it hasn't been as easy and sometimes it hasn't been as easy to balance yield and soil health, uh, for example. But, you know, technology has a massive role to play there, partly because, you know, the better information, the, the better and faster and cheaper testing and all these sorts of things, but also because technology is starting to work out different ways to incent behaviour. So if you look at, you know, Indigo, for example, again, I would put that in the category of what they're doing with the Terraton initiative is a massive program in behavioural change. They're saying, you know, we've got to put incentives into the market to, to get people to change, to go through land use transition that's otherwise difficult. But the, the kind of other side of the coin is organic, which, which basically says you move first and then we'll pay you later, right? Yeah. Which, yeah. Which, which is a tough proposition for a lot of producers as opposed to saying, you know, we believe that the world is going to, now, again, this is, you know, I don't know anything about Indigo. I don't know anyone who works there. This is me just thinking about the market in, in, in sort of high-level strategic sense. But if you want significant land use transition, you've got to work out how to incent it better than just saying, oh, it'll be a premium and, oh, you'll get more money for your premium product. You know, that, that's not an incentive. That's a, that's a vague promise. And most people don't respond to vague promises. Most people respond to, hey, here's a new credit card and it's got a lower interest rate and you can do a balance transfer, right? Like that's, yep. that's something you can do something about. Right. As you become an investor, does it feel like there's added pressure on those first one or two investments as in like, that's going to be how people identify the fund, you know, is by kind of those first couple of investments or is that really kind of irrelevant? No, it's a great it's a great question. I would say a close associate of the fund described it this way, which I think is perfect, which is a band's first album has songs on it that probably were written, you know, some time ago. Yeah. And and Sarah and I can have the privilege of having worked in ag tech in Australia, you know, about as long as it's possible to 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 work in ag tech in Australia. And so we've known a number of promising companies for a decent bit of time. And as an investor, that's exactly the position you want to be in because we want to back areas and we want to back opportunities, but more than anything, we want to back people. Yeah. And, and so, you know, having already spent time with those people and seen, you know, help them and seen how they've respond to the innumerable challenges that come up in an early journey of a startup, a very good way to get confidence. So you're absolutely right. You know, people will judge us for sure. On, on, you know, what, what happens now, you know, I feel as confident as it's possible to be that, that you know, we've, we've the two investments that we'll make first are ones that we're super passionate about and we have, you know, deep conviction over. You obviously think there's, a, there's enough capable entrepreneurs out there to build a fund around, but do you think in general in ag tech, and uh, you can either speak to it specifically to Australia or, or globally, do we have enough capable entrepreneurs out here trying to solve some of these big problems or is that, is that the bottleneck or is it a limitation of, you know, or is it limitations elsewhere? Yeah, I don't, I'm not sure that there's a single bottleneck. I think everything that you mentioned uh, are problems, challenges that impact the different ecosystems in different ways over different periods of time. So, you know, in the U S you know, it's, a, it's relatively speaking, especially, but it's a, it's a pretty healthy 
ecosystem. I know, you know, you, you talk about decent bid as do as do a lot of people uh, in, you know, kind of ag tech and ag Twitter, I think in particular, that, you know, there's still a lot of work to be done to make sure that the people who are putting solutions out there are solving problems that people actually have. Again, I, I don't think that's specific to ag. I think it's just we largely live in ag. And so that's what we see. But when you, you know, there's, there's plenty of stuff out there in all the rest of the world that's made by people who think they're solving the problem. But in actual fact, there are very few people who really have it. To talking a bit more broadly about the, the range of stuff that Agthentic and Tenacious get involved in, you know, we are the co-designers and co-implementers of a program called Farmers to Founders. So you briefly touched on last week, uh, the Evoke Ag Week. So Evoke Ag Week in Melbourne was a big week and lots of interesting things happened. You know, we, we got to uh, first close, which was super exciting. But one of the other things that happened is the, the first kind of cohort of the Farmers to Founders Bootcamp program um, had a pitch night event um, last Thursday. And it, look, it was just so amazing to see people pitching solutions to real problems that are really out there, you know, done by farmers, you know, for farmers. And sure, look, there are lots of other ways where like an investor might come along, in fact, did, you know, later on they said, oh, their ask was wrong or they don't know what their pre-money val is. And like those things are all definitely true, but for sure something that you would never say about any of those startups is that they're like, why are you doing that? You know, nobody wants that thing. So look, I think there are a range of different things. For sure, we want more and better founders. For sure, we want people to come in from other industries, but we also want to match them with a filter, whether that's people or whether that's experience, to make sure that you know they're taking those skills and applying them to problems uh, that need to be solved. I mean, capital's flowing in. Probably the other thing about last week was really seeing a big uplift between last year and this year in terms of the seriousness with which you know international investors are now taking the Australian ag tech ecosystem uh, you know so there are startups there are startups that are you know raising series A and series B and progressing to the US and sort of you know making steps that look like an ecosystem is kind of turning out mature investment opportunity so I think you know what the challenge is when you take a snapshot you need to understand that it's a snapshot of an evolving ecosystem. And so what you're seeing might just be the first couple of instances of something that's actually working better below ground, but you just haven't seen much of it emerge yet. Fascinating. Well, I was I was kidding about the three hour thing, although I definitely could go that long. I've already overstayed my welcome on the time I've asked of you, Matthew. Thank you so much. This has been fascinating. I mean, there I feel like I haven't even scratched the surface, which is uh, my fault as an interviewer. But uh, I really, really enjoyed this, and it's going to make for a great episode. Thank you. Cool. I had heaps of fun. I hope that leaves you feeling energized to get out and start the next great ag tech startup company. I personally find Matthew's wisdom and just clarity on all of those topics, the rare product of deep experience. So I hope you got a lot out of that. Thank you again, Matthew, for taking the time to be on the show. Are you an entrepreneur or aspiring entrepreneur in ag? Let me know what you're working on. I'm at tim at aggrad.com. I'm just always interested and curious to hear what listeners are up to. So who knows? Maybe I could even help out in some way. 
Thanks so much, as always, for your time and your attention, especially in a period of time we're in now where we all have so much on our minds. I appreciate you, and we'll be back on Monday for a bonus episode about water, and then, of course, with another Ag Innovator next week. Hey, thanks again for listening to the Future of Agriculture podcast. If you like what you heard here today, I'd love to connect with you further. Go over to futureofag.com. That's futureofag.com. And let me know a good email address for you so we can keep in touch. Also, you'll be able to check out a ton of bonus content on the blog while you're there. Otherwise, make sure you're subscribed to the show so you can catch another fascinating ag innovator here next week. Hey.